Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages go 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 find your healing go find your happy stages podcast is sponsored by better help that's h-e-l-p hi i'm stephanie j block and i'm mary lee fairbanks welcome to stages podcast where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage when you asked if you could audition for playing our song, you were the last thing in the world, Lottie and I were thinking of. But we also went, well, we can't say no. I mean, she's brilliantly talented. We can't say no. And she's flying herself out to but California. But I did. I paid right? for my own damn ticket. I know. I and we it. went, well, this is, she really wants us to see her. And, and I'm a big fan of anybody that is willing to work that hard, deserves mm -hmm. a shot. And you can, <laughs> we went, you know what? I think we have to cast them. <laughs> I mean, you were so, well, you were so who you are, but it, but it, we just didn't know the, the range of what you could do. And it was a totally different, something we had never seen on you or expected. And it was magical. With you, with our guest, I'm having a bit of trouble with your intro because usually I describe the guest in a very personal way. It's it's a lot less credits and a whole lot more um, characteristic and relationship-based. But with you, you've reached such a level of success, a level that very few people can speak to. Um, in my day, you were part of what was called the Fab Four, and I'm not referring to the Beatles. I'm referring to the cast of Seinfeld. And truly, in the 1990s, when I was growing up, y'all, your cast, you defined that decade. Pop culture was literally shaped by what was happening on your set, on your show. A personal side note, and this is the truth, in both the Beatles and in Seinfeld, George was my favorite. Okay, so I'm referring to George Costanza, which made you, our guest, world famous. But before being globally recognized and acclaimed, you were a New York actor, um, a Tony Award winning New York actor in Jerome Robbins Broadway. But you weren't necessarily, quote unquote, known at that time. And then you were cast as Philip Stuckey in Pretty Woman. And this is another like monumental, globally acclaimed and globally loved film. And um, I don't think I'm saying too much by saying that was an incredible opportunity for you at that point in, yes. in your career. And if my story's straight, it was collaborating with Gary Marshall that then led to you being a part of the series Seinfeld. And then since then, you've had a massive career. It's been full. Your life has been full. You're an Emmy, Tony, Grammy winning artist. Oh my God, you are so close to being an EGOT. <laughs> Get an Oscar already, why don't you? And I was lucky enough to share the stage with you back in 2010 in Neil Simon and Marvin Hamlish. They're playing our song. And that production was done at Reprise and you served as the artistic director there for many years. And it is still one of my all-time happiest and most fulfilling theatrical um, experiences because of who you are. Anyway, we've got this genius sitting here. I'm going to stop introducing him and just welcome him to the podcast. Listen, I can't wait to meet him. We have Mr. Jason Alexander. <laughs> Jason Alexander to stage, please. Jason, can we have you to stage? Hello, you. Hello, my doll. I wanted to really make you laugh. Seinfeld, because now it's on Netflix, is making this huge um, resurgence. Splash it yeah. with 
with teens, with teenagers. I have a 16 year old son and I was talking to one of his friend's moms and I was saying, oh, I'm interviewing Jason Alexander next week. And she said, oh my God, my daughter is in love with him. I said, are you kidding? She said, she has a poster of him in her bedroom. She said me, look at this, look at this. It's you oh, and your skin rug, that's, right? not, that's not right. That's no, no, no young woman should be subjected to that. <laughs> I thought it was so great. And my son and I pick shows and binge and we're binging Seinfeld right now. And he's loving it. It's so fun. This, that's going to launch me into the first question, which um, now that I'm a parent, I want to know how you navigated raising two sons, while you were so recognizable, while fans are approaching you and your family, what they thought about that, how did you protect them? Or how did you, how did you move your way through that? As you probably know from our time hanging out together, Dana and I never really bought into quite this community. I've never been fully comfortable with celebrity in, in general, but certainly the Hollywood brand of celebrity. So we don't do a lot of the things that would put you in the public eye. I, I don't go to the openings. I don't do the premieres. I don't do the parties. But I've been to Bob's Big Boy with you, and the yeah. hostess just jaw drops to the yeah. floor, and the yeah. people around are murmuring. Unless you really isolate yourself in your home, you're gonna feel the reverberations of who you are in this industry. So you're the the person you really want to ask this question of is is Dana because I. I feel like I got the luckiest kind of celebrity there is in that most of the people, especially when Seinfeld was, was first doing its thing. Most of the people that took a liking to George were living the same life I was living. They were Mm. raising young families. Mm -hmm. They were normal, everyday, well-balanced working people. And if they saw me, they'd go, Hey man, like a show, you know, that was, it wasn't crazy interaction. I didn't have stalkers. I wasn't yeah. a sex symbol. I wasn't an action star. No guy wanted to take me on. No girl got in. My, you know, it just wasn't that. Yeah. So I could, even at the height of it, I'd go to the supermarket. I'd go to the dry cleaner. Mm. I would run my errands. And what the boys were exposed to was they had one foot in two worlds. There was the way they were treated when daddy wasn't around and nobody knew who daddy was. Mm -hmm. And then there was the reactions they would get or the world they would be in when daddy was around. And we would talk all the time because we we don't live in some crazy extravagant way. Also, they didn't give a crap about Seinfeld. They didn't watch Seinfeld. I think Gabe really started watching in college because his friends were watching it. Um, he was 12 or 13 and he, <laughs> he came to me and said, what is, all right, what is this Seinfeld thing that everybody's, so we had DVDs by then and we, I said, well, here, he, cause he had never watched. I said, here's two episodes you might like, go, go take a look. So he goes in the, in the TV room and he comes out an hour later. And I said, what do you think? He goes, you're kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that something that the the yeah. Jason who walks through the world is you're incredibly articulate. Um, you care greatly for and about other people, and I, you have this like moral compass. And yet the characters you play, yeah, not, not so, so much. much. Not so much. Sometimes. Did you find that kind of early that that was not your ticket per se, but you're like, okay, this is what's getting me the jobs. I am perceived when I walk into a casting office as this sort of archetype. Well, you know. Steph, it was, but it wasn't. I mean, I never got anywhere near anything like that until Pretty Woman. And Gary Marshall did not want me for that movie. He, mm-hmm. I met him and he was like, you're good. It could be you. It could be somebody else. Maybe <laughs> it's you. I don't know. You know and, but he thought I was too young, too baby-faced, ah. and, and really too small. Because there was, in the script, the, the little tussle that Richard and I have at the end of the movie was more of a fight scene. And they, he couldn't get the actor he wanted. And the casting director, Diane Crittenden, was, a, she was just pushing me. She just thought I was a really interesting idea. And so they ran out of time. And, and she got Richard to do a scene with me in his office where I stood on phone books to approximate our height. So she and Richard, championed for you. and She actually did. And then Richard did. Because Richard then took that videotape and put it on Gary's desk and went, this is the guy. Did you know Richard well, at that time? or no, did he, I never met him before. He literally gave up of his time to meet yeah. with someone he didn't know. I've seen enormous acts of generosity and, and uh, 
throughout our community from from people that don't necessarily have to do that. Uh, but but Richard, I mean, I've worked with Richard twice, and he's just he is that guy. When we were doing Pretty Woman, Gary Marshall, we were improvising half of that film, so there were takes of everything where I was really a crappy person. And then there were takes where I was just a schmuck and he kind of cobbled together the performance that he wanted. So I got my first national exposure in that way as a bad guy right. and then turn around and it's George. And for some reason, George, who, you know, I, we always try to figure it out. He's amoral. He's untalented. He's unethical, he's, <laughs> but somehow people, but everybody love loves him. Yeah, he's, he's the anti-hero. Yeah. Everybody's he's rooting for you. And yet you're person. not a great person. George Costanza is <laughs> not a great guy. No, not great. Okay. I want to go back to your family for a minute. You've been married for oh, almost 40 years. Is that right? This coming May, 40. I mean, that in itself is remarkable. And that in this business is even more remarkable. What do you chalk that up to? A very understanding woman. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm actually not kidding. People say all the time, what's the secret to a long marriage? I go, marry the right person first time. This is what I say about Dana all the time. Because, you know, sometimes the roads are bumpy and you have really bad days and you do really bad things and you make really bad choices. But there's a line from Raisin in the Sun that it's one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite ideas about how you treat people that you love. And my wife lives by it. And the line is something like, when do you think is the time to love somebody the most? When they've Mm -hmm. done good and made things easy for everybody. It's when they have done their worst and they've sunk so low that the world the world can't love them. The world does because the world's done with them. So it's, a, it, it's this idea of when someone is at their worst, remembering them at their best and beckoning them back. Mm. And Dana has been that for me, along with everything else, where you really fall in love with somebody. Every guy will tell you this. You love your wife and then they become a mother and you go, now I know who you are. I, I fell in love with the mother of my children all over mm. again. So she has been my guiding star. She has been my creative partner. She came to the first hundred tapings of Seinfeld. And she was the person that I would do a take and look at and go, what do you think? And she'd go, remember this or think about that. or remember, you know. And mm. nobody else on that set was able to give me that stuff. Has she but- ever directed? She hasn't, but she, she has always been any script I'm working on. She always reads. She had an idea. So I'm supposed to direct a, a a stage version of war of the roses. We're sitting with the script and Dana says to me, you know, the one thing it isn't is it doesn't feel contemporary. It doesn't feel now. What about making it an interracial company? And that's what it now is. (laughs) It has been rewritten to be exactly that. Her creative ideas are extraordinary. She's a dramaturg at heart. She is. And in this pandemic, the greatest discovery, I mean, you know, we went to couples therapy. I've been in therapy since I was... 37 and I'm 62, you know, big proponents. We're big Um, proponents here. I keep checking in and learning and trying to figure it out and and not make the same mistakes anyway. But in the pandemic, we kept turning to each other and going, you know, this doesn't suck. I don't mind you being my world. This is okay. I don't know the secret. I wish I could uh, say it, but I, I do have friends, mostly male friends who have almost had disasters in their marriage. We'll talk and, and, you know, I always say, if she will give you a chance, earn it, go get it. Cause wherever you go, wherever you think you're going to go, it's still going to be you. <laughs> so. That's right. That's I've, right. So, I've sort of come to believe lately that when people aren't at their best, when they're behaving badly or make terrible decisions, or it's a trauma that's not been processed and it's causing them to revert to these behaviors. And then if you can't forgive the behaviors or try to help them to understand the behaviors, they're being punished twice. One for the trauma that happened to them in the first place. And now again, because there's not patience to help guide us through what we're going through as we try to process it. It's so interesting to say that. So uh, one of the things that's coming up in my life, I, I can't talk about any particulars because we're just finishing negotiation, but my writing partner and I are, are going to watch a podcast and, and it, 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 I can tell you some, it's called Really No Really. And, it, and the premise is we, we delve into things that when you hear about it, you go, really, really? 
know? Yeah. And one of the people that we talked, we've banked a bunch of episodes. One of the people we talked to is a former neo-Nazi white supremacist. And one of the reasons why he left the movement and has become this remarkable person is the Seinfeld show. He fell in love with the Seinfeld show. Wow. Which really? No, really? <laughs> you know, right? He was forbidden from watching it. Because you can't. And he, one of the things he refused to give up was his adoration of that show. And so he was one of our guests. And we said to him, tell me something I don't know about people in this movement that are so filled with this hate and that, you know, want this horrific agenda. And he said, is what you need to know. They're all broken. Yeah. They all had a major trauma. Yeah. And oddly enough, if you can find a way to respond to them with some kind of love, you will move them far further than if you punish them or denounce them. I mean, denounce them, sure, hold them accountable for what they're doing. But, you know, don't write them off as monsters because there's a human being there that got really badly damaged. And if it's true to that extreme, then it's true across the spectrum. And it, you know, and we all need a little understanding. We're we're all broken in some way, and and so trying to recognize that in others, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a good eye on the world. But anyway, if you're lucky enough to marry someone who can do that, you're going to have a very successful marriage. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> on a very smaller scale to recognize. I was finding that I was saving and showing my best self when I was outside of the home. And then when I came home, they weren't getting my best self. And I thought, this Mm. is wrong. This is not right. So I always would have to make sure to preserve energy, to preserve understanding, to not get so tired out there in the world so that I could still be my best self, you know, within the home as a mom and, and a wife. What we're all describing is the possibility, the admitting the possibility that we might be the problem. <laughs> right, yes, exactly so. <laughs> um, and people who, I, I find people who are really stuck are people who, who cannot look inward Yeah, it's not me. why it's they are where they are. One of the things I say all the time is we are 50% responsible for the life we're living. You are a co-creator Everything. of where you are, whether it's good, whether it's bad, you are 50% responsible for that. And that we start a religion. You are, again, we've mentioned so articulate, so well-spoken, and you are pretty vocal about social issues. Do you find that because you have done so much directing and you've done so much teaching that that has helped broach these conversations because you can be very smart and articulate and still try to come to the table, have a conversation with somebody. And within three sentences, that conversation is going to be shut down and over. You don't do that. So what is that the director in you? Is that the teacher in you or were your parents like that? What's that seed? I don't think uh, it was anything innate. The thing I'm trying to grow is curiosity and empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as actors, we, you know, I've played a lot of people that are potentially despicable, but I don't approach them as you are despicable and I'm going to play you that way. You, you come at even the worst characters we're given with an open heart and trying to find who they are at their best and how their worldview sits. So what I have found, although I cannot do it on social media and I've stopped trying, Social media, I found, I'm only on Twitter. I mean, I'm on Instagram. I don't really use it very much. I am not on Facebook. So if you see me on Facebook, it ain't me. I'm on Twitter. And I used to engage in some social and political stuff. And what I learned was I cannot have an articulate conversation in this format. I am preaching to the choir or I'm pissing off the haters. Mm -hmm. And that's all there was to it. And I went, nobody on Twitter is looking to me for political punditry. And I more or less backed off from that. But I do have a lot of conversations and try to with people with whom I have enormous disagreements. And there's an organization that one of my heroes named Daniel Lebetsky is just starting called Starts With Us. And it is a campaign to nurture and codify empathy and curiosity. In schools or where where are they? In schools, in social action, in, in the workplace. It is a way of of looking at this ever-growing divide that is pushing us all into our tribes and into our corners, trying to make us say, 
okay, you have a different worldview. I'm, I don't want to challenge you yet, at least. I need to understand you. I'm curious. Because at the end of the day, what I have found in most of these conversations. We all want the same thing. Yeah. We want the same end. We disagree on what will get us there. Yeah. And the best example I can give you of that is a conversation I had years ago when I was on the uh, campaign trail for Obama. And I got into a very public discussion because we, I, I was never supposed to be advocating anything. I was, what you do as, a, as a, uh, an advocate is you go around to the campaign offices and you thank the volunteers. You're like a little treat. They get to take a picture with a celebrity. You know, it's not, you're, you're not out doing policy. They, they had a reception at a restaurant and somehow we got tea party. A lot of, a lot of haters showed up and they mm. wanted, they wanted camera attention. So this woman got in my face and she was furious that I was using celebrity as this platform. And, and, and I, I said to her, you know, if, if, if you can calm down for one minute, I, here's what I think is so funny. You and I probably agree on more stuff than we don't. And she said, no way. No, we don't. I said, I think we do. I think it's possible. And I made her a kind of a wager. I said, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'll make you bet. And I'll, I'll, I'll pay you if I'm wrong. And you give a dollar to the Obama people if I'm right. You pick the topic. And we'll talk about how we feel about it. And if you don't think we're closer than further, you then I'll pay you or you'll pay me. But you're the judge. And she said, all right. I am an evangelical Christian. I don't believe in abortion for any reason, any reason whatsoever. I want it made illegal and I want it eradicated tomorrow. And I know you don't agree. And I was stumped for a second. And then I said, well, let me see if, I, if this theory of we're closer than not works. I said, let me repeat what you just said in a slightly different way. You'd like to live in a world where no woman, no couple, no family ever feels they need to have an abortion. and ideally never feels they even want to have an abortion. Is that fair? She said, yeah. I said, well, I want the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so does every choice right advocate that I know. Mm -hmm. Nobody on my side is going, yes, another abortion, we got one. It's a tragedy. And I'll even give you, I'll give you, even though I don't have any idea when life is conceived, when human life is human life, I will give you that every abortion is a death. I will give it to you. We don't cheer abortions. I cheer choice. I cannot tell a woman what to do with her body. And there is a law that says, it's an unwritten law, but it's the law of body autonomy. If God forbid, Stephanie, you were dying and my bone marrow is the only thing on this planet that could save your life. There is not a law Can't anywhere that can make me give up that part of my body to save your life. That's right. Even when I'm dead, Unless I've willed it to you, you can't invade my body and take this thing to save your life. So how is this any different? However, I said, I want what you want. I just don't think we get there by making it illegal. It was illegal. And there were lots of dead babies and lots of dead women. Yeah. I think we get there through education. I think we get there through health care and family planning and, and opportunities for women and, and all kinds of things. Hard work to get us to zero abortions. You want to take the fast track. I don't think it will work. But I want what you want. And God bless her. She, she went was over and gave some money to the Obama. She gave a buck oh, to Obama campaign. I love okay. that. All right. And she wow. didn't have to compromise her belief no. system or her no. morals. We right. just disagreed. You know, her, her answer was, if you make it illegal, it, it'll be gone. And my answer was, but it won't. It's not that I'm so smart. It was illegal. It didn't work. Right. Right. So empathy, curiosity, it's the same thing with the white supremacist guys. To be able to go up to someone who's covered in racist tattoos and espousing hate and go, how did you get, did you always feel this way or did something happen? And, And if you... One, I know, I know way too many former white supremacists for my own good, but I met a guy years ago who had also, same story, had been in and come out and he got out. He was working for a terrible person named Tom Metzger. And he actually said to Tom Metzger, hey, Tom, what happens if tomorrow we reach our mandate and everyone who's not an Aryan is hanging from a tree? What do we do the next day? And Tom Metzger said to him, I don't know, hair color? Yeah, find someone else to blame. Yeah, he said we're in the hate business. That's how we make our way. We'll find something else to hate. 
Is this the point? This is the mission statement of your podcast is to talk about empathy and connection and the things. No, that- not at all. Actually, it's it's uh, when it's doing its thing, it's a comedic podcast. So yeah. we look at things that are odd and funny and we talk to the people involved with them. But, you know, when you hear a former neo-Nazi white supremacist left the movement partially because he loved the Seinfeld show, you go, yeah, I got to no well, talk yeah. to this. <laughs> that conversation became had some really serious stuff. Uh, most of our conversations are, you know, we, we have episodes with um, uh, people who are champion eaters, uh, the, the, the most winning <laughs> champion eater woman in the world. We, ha- we had a fascinating conversation with a woman who you can find on, on the internet. She's a speech therapist who taught her dog over 50 words. I follow her. I yeah. follow her. The yeah, dog presses Stella. a button. Yes, yes talks to the human by pressing yeah. the button. And yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. He gets so, so angry at the other dog who's taking the toy. And it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. 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 And so uh, funny, silly that we talked to a, um, a, a sign language interpreter who interprets uh, for rappers at concerts. Oh, my oh, gosh. So here's a woman who is not black throwing the n-word around language and going a mile a minute and talking all kinds of trash and you know and i'm going how's that going you know (laughs) (laughs) you ever get any blowback from that it's like you know so they've been really interesting fun across the spectrum conversations and uh oh i can't wait to hear it Do you, is there any concern nowadays, we've had a couple conversations with other uh, comics or satirists, the place now that you all hold with humor, with um, perception and how to form a joke, how to present a joke, where do you feel that place is for the comic in today's climate and the cancel culture? And um, I know this, even in and of itself, posing the question and answering the question, there could be you know, fire on each side. But it's interesting because it does feel like that sort of social commentary where people would become enlightened or become aware of something because of the humor, because it was dressed in humor, um, is like, no, it's no longer allowed. No, it's a very difficult time. I I was never really a stand-up comic. I I had one act that was stand-up comedy, and I, I rarely do it anymore. I never did it in clubs. I never did it in colleges, you know, but um, here's the best way I can answer the question. So when I was doing some, <laughs> I was working on a peace initiative in the Middle East. We're, we're very close. We're very close. Uh, <laughs> it's gotten it sounds well. hilarious. Yeah, we've done very well. But I was meeting <laughs> with um, uh, one of the most impressive people I've ever met uh, was a former president of Israel named Shimon Perez. And he was asking me, if I thought comedy could be a useful tool in getting closer to the Palestinians and, you know, trying to find some sort of peace accord. And I know he was looking for an absolutely answer, you know, and I went, Mr. President, it's a terrible idea. And he said, why? I said, because comedy by its very nature is always potentially offensive to somebody. If I do a blonde joke and you're blonde, if I do a bald joke and you're bald, if I do a fat joke and you think you're fat, if I do a short joke and you think you're short, whatever it is, if you are, if you go through your life looking for the landmines, you will step on a landmine. Mm. So for me, but I can say this in the abstract because I don't really do stand up anymore. To me, it was never about what was being said. It was who was saying it and what was their intention. Mm -hmm. I have heard, we have all heard comics go really rough, really, really edgy. But the perception is they don't want to hurt anybody. They are holding the mirror up to everybody and going, you know, we're all pretty silly and we all have foibles and we all have taboos and we all are afraid and we all, and all of us have this humanity. And if we just could laugh at it a little bit, we might not walk around so stressed out about these perceptions. And they say horrible things and you go, I'm good. Conversely, (laughs) I've had people that aren't really using the worst material, but I go, this person doesn't like such and such. Right. They're just mean. They're just They're mean. Just yeah. Mean. And that meanness comes through. So I always think it's in the intention of the teller. I, if with the best of intention, I say something that 
that is upsetting or triggering. Okay, yes, I'm sorry I did that. I wasn't looking to do that. I couldn't have known I was going to do that. And that wasn't my intent. So, you know, I, I tend to preach, make room for intention in these mm-hmm. things. Same thing, you know, I teach a lot of college students um, acting. And you, I almost always have to take a little HR class about, you know, don't say this, don't do that, don't blah, 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 blah. So I start every class with a new group of people going, my friends, I'm 62 years old and, <laughs> and you know, the world is changing rapidly. I am perfectly happy to honor and respect the things that you need to feel you're in a safe environment and that we can work together. If I make a mistake, would you please know it's a mistake mm-hmm. and tell me it's tell me that I've done it and I will learn from it and we'll address it in the moment. But I'm here to respect you and hopefully you'll respect me. And this is this is work about emotions. This is work that we use our lives in. And, you know, so right. we'll get into some things, but know that I'm here to try and be helpful to you and not tear you down and not make you feel bad about yourself or expose things you don't want to expose. That's not my job. And I, I, as far as I know, I've, we've never had an issue. Just put the foibles out on the table. You know, I was looking at some of the classes that you did at BU and the way you talk to students. And I mean, you really seem to me to be like a rare and wonderful teacher, how comfortable you make them and how they aren't afraid to take chances because they trust you. And so I'm wondering, was there a mentor or a teacher in your life that you admired? So now you emulate that? Yeah, everything I teach is based on, I mean, I've been doing it for so long, I've probably augmented and found a bunch of my own stuff. But it's based on the teacher that really taught me, and that was Larry Moss. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, had, I did three years of college as an acting major, left prematurely for work. And then I was studying with you know people and trying to find, I had lots of tools, but no way to use them. And uh, I stumbled onto Larry, again, my wife, she had said to me, because Dana had wanted to be an actress and had studied to be an actress for a while and then gave it up very quickly in our, our relationship. But um, she had studied with Larry at Circle in the Square. And she kept saying, you should really talk to Larry Moss, Larry Moss, Larry Moss. And Larry Moss was coming out of my ears. And, you know, and I was doing a workshop and there were two actors in it that were really, I thought, wonderful. And son of a gun. They're both Larry Moss. And so he mm. came and he saw the performance and he walked right up to me and said, you're very good. I could make you much better. And I very cockily said, oh, really? How, mu- how long would it take for you to make me exactly. much Exactly. How and much he, is it going to cost? Yeah, right. <laughs> and without batting an eye, he said, if you work your ass off, I will change your career in a year. And he did. Wow. And what he gave me was um, exactly what I said. He, he gave me the methodology to use the tools, because all the teachers talk about the same tools of craft. But very few talk about, okay, I know how a a hammer and a saw and a screwdriver work. It doesn't mean I can build a house. I have to Mm -hmm. learn how to build a house. Mm -hmm. Larry taught me how to build a house. And I I can, I I say to actors all the time, everything I know about acting, as far as the structure of it, I can tell you in 30 minutes and everything else is practice. So I think the reason that particularly college students respond to me is I'm talking about things they've heard. But they, still, you hand them a script and they go, uh, duh, duh. <laughs> you know, they, they're not quite sure. Yeah. And I go, okay, doesn't matter where you're performing, camera, no camera, huge theater, little theater. Doesn't matter if it's a song, a commercial, children's theater, a monologue, a scene, drama, comedy, or anything else. Here's the questions you have to ask and answer. That's how you make your choices. With your choices, you go to rehearsal. And you bat your choices back and forth with your colleagues and you make a blueprint and that blueprint becomes your foundation. Know that you own that foundation once you've got it. And then play. And then play. You will never be worse than your foundation. You will only find things that make you better and better and better. So building that foundation is what I talk about. And it makes them crazy because it's a lot of thinking and most actors don't like to have to think about what they're doing. They, They truly believe that if they feel what their character is feeling, then mm-hmm. they are the character and they're doing what the character should do. Right. And I always say feelings don't tell stories. Actions tell stories.
So you've worked on both coasts and you're a real New York theater guy. I mean, that's where your roots are. But can you talk a little bit about the perceptions between the differences between L.A. and New York? I mean, L.A. is sometimes thought to be more um, looks first and that's what gets you in the door. And then your talent is sort of a second, whereas New York is more talent or merit based. Um, Did you find that when you first got out there? Did you have a hard time when you first got to L.A.? I find it now. I can't get in the room. See, I don't act That's very madness. much. I don't act very much, not because I've given up acting. It's because I nobody will use me. This is madness. Well, how do you come a, to terms with that, Jason Alexander? The Jason Alexander, almost an egot Jason Alexander. How do you come <laughs> to terms with that? Um, I'm just a get at the moment, apparently. Um therapy helps. I mean, it for a while <laughs> it was. Uh, it, it it can enrage you and it can defeat you and it can depress you and it can do all kinds of things. Where I got to was, all right, can't do this. What can I do? So you direct and you teach and you learn how to do pottery and you teach yourself base and you raise your kids and you help people and you do, you go, okay, look, when I was a little boy in New Jersey, fantasizing about maybe when I'm 40, I'll get to work on Broadway. And getting there at 19 with Steve and Hal and getting a Tony at 29 and having a hit series that is still on 30 years after. I mean, nobody owes me another day in this industry. I don't, you know, I've had more than my fair share of extraordinary fortune. And that's what I go to as I go, you know, this is not personal. Mm -hmm. The industry didn't get together and say, hey, no more Jason Alexander. We hate that guy. That's not what happened. There is no solid explanation for why I can't get in the door. Mm. A lot of people, what I've heard over and over again is, we don't really see you in this, and we really don't want to say no to you. And I go, well, you're saying no now, (laughs) but I haven't been able to show you anything. <laughs> I said I'd rather have. I hear no all the time. I'm an actor. 99.9% of a career for an actor is no. But but no with an opportunity is a lot better than no, we just don't see it. Right. Um, yeah. You just said something though that can bleed into every bit of this entire conversation. It's not personal. Mm-hmm. Whether yeah. that is a comic telling a joke, whether it's a fan coming up to you and wanting to take a, like, it's, we can't walk through this world thinking everything is a personal affront or a person, a personal adulation or a personal acclaim. It's just, I don't think that's a healthy mentality. And we are, are there now. So we take everything yeah. so so personally. But, you know, there's another side of it, too, is that I I firmly believe that roadblocks and and gateways are put in our way when we become too focused on one direction that we think we're supposed to go in. Mm. And so you get these roadblocks where all of a sudden you go, well, now, well, now what am I going to do? You start digging a trench around the road and all of a sudden you discover, well, I can write. I didn't know I could write or I can paint. I didn't know I could paint or I could do a podcast. I didn't know I could do a podcast because out of the stop sign, you were forced to turn another way that you wouldn't have looked if the road was clear and you were just walking along. And so you discover hidden talents, hidden gifts, hidden ways of thinking that you didn't even know you were capable of because there was a no put in your way. You know, there's. I'll, I'll make a recommendation for, for both of you and for everybody that listens to your show. There is a movie that apparently is being made into a, a stage piece in, in England right now, but there's a movie that became my world and it, it, from the weirdest place. It's a docudrama. It's a, it's a reenactment of a true event. Um, and it's called Touching the Void. And it's about two alpine mountaineers. And apparently in alpine mountaineering, you go up and down the same day. You are attached to each other and it's, it's, you're climbing through ice and snow and you get to the top and you come down. Yeah. You lost me. I'd never do that ever. (laughs) That's why I said that this would be the thing that's going to change my life. So what happened to these, this, these two men is they went up and they got into a whiteout. The weather changed. They're in a blizzard. And one of them gets hurt. One of them takes a fall and breaks their leg. And apparently the law of the mountain is if one of them is disabled, you leave them there. The other one gets down because otherwise both of you are going to die. 
Right. But his partner said, in these conditions, if I just leave him here, he's going to die. So he tried to get him down. They had 100 feet of rope and the, the, the abled one would sit in the snow and he'd lower the guy down. And then when it was the end of the rope, the, the injured guy would sort of hammer his way in and then the other guy would. And, that's, and they were trying to get down the mountain. As he's lowering him, there's an ice shelf that breaks and the injured guy is now dangling at the end of a hundred foot rope. And the guy holding him can't see him, can't hear him. Doesn't know if he's a hundred feet off the ground or three feet off the ground. Can't tell. Doesn't know. All he can do is sit in the snow and he's losing his strength. And he goes, I I'm going to die here. There's nothing I can do. I pray to God. He's a foot above something cuts the rope. <gasps> the guy who's injured falls over a hundred feet oh inside a crevasse in the mountain and is wedged up to his waist in a crack in this ice cave where his broken leg is now a compound fracture. He's broken ribs and he's punctured a lung. And he's inside this cave and he, he's going to die. He is going to die. And the rest of the movie is about him. What he said is, okay, I'm going to die. But if I just stay here, I'm going to die of dehydration. It's going to be cold and painful and awful. I don't want to die that way. So I can't go up, but I got a hundred feet of rope here and there's room below me. I'm going to, I'm going to pick in the rope. I'm going to lower myself a hundred feet, see where I am. If I'm nowhere better, I'm going to take off my helmet, turn myself upside down and just drop it in this. Oh my God. But we'll see. And he goes down to the bottom of the rope and he's, he's only 10 feet off the ground. You can see ground. And there's a light source. And he goes, that's weird. So he cuts the rope, falls another 10 feet, more injuries. And after he moans and groans and gets himself together, he goes, well, I have a choice. I can stay right where I am and die because I will die. There's no question. Or I'm going to give myself 20 minutes and try and move 10 feet. Just 10 feet. And in 20 minutes, he hobbles and crawls and rolls and in enormous pain, 10, 20 feet. And then he goes, Oh, that light source seems to be like a crack in the ice. There may be a way to the exterior of the mountain. I'm not going to make it, but I'll give myself 30 minutes. I'll go another 20 feet in seven days. Oh my gosh. It took him seven days to get down, but he, he would melt snow and drink the snow. He had no food. And all he kept saying was, I always have a choice. My choice is I die right here. Mm -hmm. I let, I let it, I say I'm done. And I wait for nature and fate to take me. Or I make some other choice. I move 10 feet. Right. And that to me was, oh my God, I can move 10 feet. Yeah. Not necessarily in the direction I thought I was going to go, not towards something I thought I wanted, but rather than sit here and be miserable, I can move 10 feet. And I made my boys watch this movie and I said, yeah. hopefully you will never be in this dire a condition, but no matter where you are in your life, you can move 10 feet. Make yeah. a move, move. You ready? Yeah. I heard that story and I aligned myself with the rope. I was like, Stephanie, you're the, you're the rope. I mean, literally there's this much, you get cut, but then you still have a hundred. You can be cut. You can be, you can stick yourself in the snow. You can drag behind. Like for some reason, that's how I personified myself in that story. Yeah, I got to see it. I got to see it. Yeah, oh, I know. That's brilliant. amazing. And, and like I said, there. I saw something in the New York Times. They did a stage play of it in London with these wow. two guys climbing on this contraption up in the air. It just looks extraordinary. Wow. You know, it's really funny. I, what I thought of when I heard it was parenting. <laughs> because when <laughs> Seb, when my son was little and they would go through the different phases that kids go through, like where they don't sleep or they wake up every two hours or they're you know going through the tantrum because they can't express themselves or whatever it is. I, I don't remember where I read this, but I remember my husband and I distinctly discussing it where I said, what I have noticed in this child is that everything lasts either three weeks or three months. I can do anything for three weeks or three months. So I'm going to try not to get angry at, you know, whatever. It'll be over in three weeks or three months. And then we're going to move into a new phase. And hopefully this phase will be a fun phase. And it really, really worked. So every time you went into a phase with kids and they have so many phases, that's what I would tell myself. And then it made me treasure the happy phases. So I was like, oh no, it's going to be over in three weeks or three months. I need to cherish every second. Or if it was making me crazy, I would say, I can do it. I can do it for three weeks. Look, we're already two and a half weeks in. And isn't that funny? Yeah. I equated it to parenting. 
Yeah. And the pandemic has proved that a lot, right? You can't plan. You can't plan three months in advance. You have to just take it the week or the two weeks. Or the day. Reassess, reassess, revise, just keep moving forward through however you want to look at the abyss. But uh, that takes us back to what we're talking about, about these people that are so estranged from us in our our worldview. And, and, you know, the thing that I kind of want to say to them is, aren't you just exhausted being this upset? Is this your biggest problem? Or is, you know, do you have a child that needs something? Do you have a neighbor that's in trouble or a parent that's sick? Or maybe your community needs something. You, mm-hmm. you want to dwell on this? There's something about the, the, um, the heightening of anger as a, as a righteous and noble thing. And that I go, it, it ain't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it obliterates all your other choices. And now it's time for the five questions. Jay, do you have anything in your closet that you will keep forever? Other than the complete George wardrobe, which I still have and wear. Did you steal that wardrobe? <laughs> yeah, I did. And I still wear it. And people like paparazzi, there's one street here that has paparazzi, and they'll put up pictures of me now wearing the same thing I wore on an episode 30 years ago. Who it wore it better? Yeah. I guess it would be you or, or you. Or, you. Or yeah, me. yeah um, no, that's a perfect answer, unless you've got something that's a little more sentimental. The only thing I, like I have that. that's in the closet, and I and I don't know what to do with it. Um, is a pinky ring that my dad wore most of his life that he gave to me um, about a year before he passed. I, I don't, I'm not allowed to wear any ring other than this one on my fourth finger. Fair. My boys don't wear rings. I don't know what to do with it. And I, I you know, I guess what I do is I go, hey, honey, put put it in the box next to me when you, when you put me mm. down. But I don't know what else to do with it. I, 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 my mom passed about four years ago and we have boxes of stuff. And this is the big conundrum in my house. My Dana will go, would you go through the boxes? And I go, I don't, it doesn't help, honey. What's in there are shit that is not important to me, but was very important to her. What am I going to do? I don't know what to do with it. So that it, that's in my closet. Okay. I have my father's pinky ring in my closet too. You got what was yeah. with the pinky ring? Oh, pinky everybody, ring. I mean, everybody we know is in guys and dolls. Oh, my bad. <laughs> the black silk shirt, the pinky ring, the whole thing. I can still trust a man with a pinky ring. There's a story there. But if you're a man wearing a pointer finger ring, then <laughs> we got a little too, little too much. Yeah, yeah. All right. I have a brand new question I'm going to spring on you. What? If you could have any question answered, what would it be? Hmm. Um, at the moment, it would be, why do we have to make our mistakes more than once <laughs> to realize their mistakes? If I, I look back and go, ah, oh, of course. I once said to Gabe, to, to Gabe when he was little, he had, he had been a horror one day and I lost my temper and I yelled at him. And at the end of the day, when I was putting him down, I went and apologized to him. And he was like shocked because he knew he'd been a little stinker. But I was the one apologizing. And I said, yeah, here's the thing. You're a kid. You're supposed to make mistakes. You're supposed to make lots of mistakes. That's how you learn. I'm not supposed to talk to you the way I did. But it's that it's that thing about, you know, so many mistakes. You go, okay, oh, that was dumb. That was stupid. I don't want to do that. Mm. Got it. And then we don't retain it. You don't retain it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'll tell you my biggest one for years and years is I would do interviews and more often with the press. And I would go for funny and entertaining rather than kind. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I would say things that I want. I would hurt people's feelings. And it didn't mean to, but I would talk about things in a way that didn't come off the right way because I was trying to be funny or entertaining. Eight years ago is when I finally said, I, before every interview, kind, not funny, kind, mm. not funny. Uh, if you could have a special skill of any kind, worldly, otherworldly, what would it be? Well, I have a tragic fear of heights, but I would love to be able to fly something. Every fantasy I had as a kid was, I'm Superman. Why am I Superman? You get to fly. I am so fearful. 
<laughs> that if somebody said, hey, you have the ability to fly, just jump off this building and go. You're going to fly. I go, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I it. But I wish, I, I really do wish I could get over that to the point where I could learn to fly something. That's, that seems like a, a glorious thing to be able to do. And no mountain climbing for you. No, 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 no. Higher than higher than my shoulders, things start to go very wrong. <laughs> okay, if you could go back to your teenage self, what advice would you give him? I'm pausing not because I don't know the answer, but because it makes me emotional. Because mm. I think it's the thing that we're all, to some degree, working with. You're enough. You're enough. Show up, show up fully, show up real. Don't manufacture. Don't be more than you are. Don't try to impress. Be who you are, where you are. It's enough. It has value. Oh, this is the toughest one. We leave the toughest one for last. Mm. If you were a nail polish color, what color would it be? And what's the cheeky little name of that polish? <laughs> Um, I am probably some fat. So purple is my favorite color. Me too. So I'm probably some fabulous fuchsia y purpley thing. And uh, um, what could it be called other than fabulous? <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. You are that. I adore you so much. Thank you for your time. Stephanie Block, you are closer to my heart than you will ever know. Thank Mary you. Lee, you're so on the path to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you're you fabulous, so both of you. Thank this you very much. Fun. You two are glorious. You stay on. We're going to stay on, and then now we talk about you. So, All right. Just, yeah. I'm going to pop off and go make a pot. I'll see okay. you later. Oh, bye. Be good. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after this break? Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages, and love where you are now. Stages Podcast is sponsored by Simply Earth. I love essential oils. I use them a lot, but I was always making up recipes on my own because I really wasn't an expert and I didn't know what to do with certain oils. So they just ended up sitting on my shelf. Until now, I have discovered Simply Earth. Simply Earth Essential Oil Recipe Box helps you clarify what oils to use and they help me make my home toxin free. Your essential oil recipe box comes with four pure essential oils, six recipes, lots of fun extras, and all for $39. And when you subscribe, you'll get a big bonus box full of all kinds of natural goodies. Using essential oils to promote wellness does not have to be confusing. And right now, Simply Earth has a special for Stages cast members. You'll get a free 80 milliliter diffuser with the code STAGES. So log on to simplyearth.com slash STAGES. Get your free diffuser and start making your home and your life toxin free. Thank you, Simply Earth, for supporting Stages Podcast. Okay. What? I mean, what is I there? love him. Yeah, of course you do. The whole world should. What? And if they didn't judge him from his on-camera persona and knew the heart of this human, which I feel is such a gift to be con- you know, considered a pal of his. Um He's a remarkable, he's a remarkable human. No, he's just got a wonderful heart. He's got such a beautiful point of view on the world. Mm -hmm. He seems like he kind of distills everything down to the Mm -hmm. most important elements and doesn't get caught up in the baloney. I I, want to be his friend. (laughs) what, What I love is when you find someone who has 
that much experience and knowledge and wants to teach, but isn't condescending, doesn't feel like they're on a high horse or a soapbox of any kind. Not at all. And he, that's how he approaches things. He has so much to share. You always walk away learning a crap load, but never feel like you have been tutored or taught, you know, and that's a, that's one of the, the blessings of spending time with Jason Alexander. Yeah. And as a director, he and I shared the stage and he is so smart. Lonnie Price is who uh, directed They're Playing Our Song. But because Jason was the artistic director of the company, he just had so much to share, so much insight. Why don't you try? And as actors, you know, we are taught in our union as peers, you're not allowed to give each other notes. You're not allowed Mm -hmm. to help shape each other performances unless it's within, you know, just saying your lines in rehearsal. Right. But I was very open to allowing him to say, this is what I'm noticing. This is what I believe is happening in this moment. And it's not really working or why don't you just check your pacing? And again, he's teaching me something, but I'm not feeling less than I'm not feeling the student. I'm still at a peer level with him, even though he is, you know, guiding me and I am better once he gives me the advice. It's a real fine line. When you really respect someone, and clearly, how could you not respect him? You respect his talent, but you also respect him as a human being. And you understand that if he is giving you some kind of um, guidance, it has nothing to do with his ego. It has nothing to do with you being less than. It has all to do with making the peace the best the peace can be. So you can see that it's probably anything he would say is outside of his own ego and to make himself feel superior or look better. It would be in service of whatever the project is that you're doing. You would just trust that about him. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Something I was thinking about when he was talking about the Israeli uh, conflict. I don't know if you've ever heard of this artist, but it's, I think it just goes by JR. He's a French artist Mm -hmm. and he did this exhibit and it was illegal when he did it. And it was called face to face. And he took photos of everyday Palestinians and everyday Israelis, shopkeepers or teachers or taxi drivers. And then he posted giant portraits of them on the opposite walls. I do remember this. Yeah. This was to sh- like, was it, I don't know. This was like 2008, 2000. It was before 2010. Yeah. It was a while ago. I heard it about was it a, a while long ago. time ago. But it was so interesting because he was just trying to show that we're really all the same and and he wanted them to see the face of the, quote, you know, enemy on the other side of that wall. It was a really beautiful exhibit. Incredible. I wish we I wish we would have brought that up. I wonder if um, Jason knew about that exhibit. That's incredible. Yeah, he probably did. I didn't want to take up time talking about that, though. I just wanted to listen to him. (laughs) (laughs) The peacekeeper that he is, right? I also just find it so interesting that this artist who has countless television shows, countless movies, and is still actively putting himself out there and just, you know, we just assume that these uh, highly acclaimed and awarded and well-known actors, it's just script after script, opportunity after opportunity, but the work never ends. I mean, starting at the start line, of the race always happens. And I, I look at it as such, I close a show and I know that I'm now starting the race again. You win a little trophy, you put it on your shelf. You're starting the race at the, the baseline again. Um, but yet you look at other people and say, oh, well, they must have it easy. They must be just, you know, getting offers left and right. Right. And that's never, ever the story. There's always a hustle there, um, in life and in art and you got to just keep starting again. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was shocking that he <laughs> can't get in the door. It's, it's incredible. It really is. It's a really tough business, you know, and when you hear it from someone who's as accomplished and talented and grounded as he is, you realize what a difficult business the acting world really is. And, and I love how he talks about, he's just in therapy the whole time to help deal with how hard it all is. <laughs> Uh, well, that was such an enjoyable morning. I don't even know. I don't even Good. know. I'm going to be like, just happy I'm going to all marinate day. in it for a while too. Yeah. What a lovely human. Lovely Hooray. human. 
Can't wait for his podcast. I'll be listening. Me too. I love you. Have a good day. I love you more. Have an awesome day. Why does it have to be a competition? Goodbye, oh, Mary see? Lee. <gasps> see? 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 Don't take it personally. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week. <laughs>